0: Alright, if you have your Bibles this morning, or your phones, that app on. We'll be in Matthew uh, 5 this morning, excuse me, Matthew 6 this morning. We'll be in verse 9 through 13. I'll give you a second to find that spot. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. If you have found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. May you hear the word of Christ. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as your people, as your church, so that we might learn the depths of who you are, that we would grow in your presence, that we would long for your presence. And Lord, may your word seep into our hearts and minds this morning. May you open our ears to receive it so that we can then embody it, that we would take it from this place this afternoon and live it out for your kingdom and glory, we offer all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we have moved into the month of April, which means that we've also transitioned to a new small thing. The small thing that we're going to be looking at for the next four Sundays is uh, kid discipleship. I'll get to that, what that means here in a second, but kid discipleship. I hope, keep that on. Uh, the forefront of your mind, because we're not going to leave it uh, for at least four Sundays. Recently, or at least in the past year, uh, Barna, you might have heard me mention that, if you want to see excellent research that is done as it relates to the American life and, and, and the Christian faith, you can go to Barna. As one of the most trusted sources and then one of the most in depth resources that we have uh, for us and at our fingertips. And they did a little study uh, not too long ago as it relates to the Christian home. They looked at the Christian home in America and they began to break down a lot of different parts of what it means for this family to be in this home, to profess Christ as King, at least the parents and some of the children what is the makeup? What's the DNA of this house? And so after much research, they categorized American home into four spaces, four spheres. And here they are. The first is the dormant home, the dormant home. So what do they mean by the dormant home? These are households that do not talk about God or faith together weekly, do not pray together every day. Uh, And do not read the Bible together weekly and do not welcome non-family visitors several times a month. So this is a family. Remember, each of these categories that I'm about to read are people who have professed faith in Christ, at least the parents and maybe a child or two. Yet for the dormant area, these are families that don't speak about Christ in the home that don't read the Bible in the home, that don't welcome uh, visitors into the home at least once a month. And then you have another category and see each of these as moving up. You have the hospitable home. This is households where non-family visitors are not seen uh, in, in the home at all. They do not talk about God or faith together weekly, do not pray together Uh, every day or two, and do not really read the Bible together weekly. They even might participate in some of these spiritual activities, but not with any type of frequency. Then you have the third category, which is called the devotional household. These are households that talk about God or faith together weekly. They pray together every day or two and read the Bible together weekly. They do not welcome non-family visitors any time during that month. Got it? You see how they're building up? And here's the last one, the vibrant household. These are households that talk about God or faith weekly. They pray together every day or two, read the Bible together weekly, and welcome the non-family visitor several times a month. And so you have these categories that Barna has laid out for the for us, and I want us to continue bringing uh, back before our mind this morning of what this means for us as Hickory Grove. And one of the aims that I would like for us to see as a church family is to be able to move eventually into a vibrant household. And I'll get to that here in a minute. But some of the problems, some of the struggles that I've heard from parents over the years once it comes to raising children in the ways of Jesus is this. Where do I even begin to disciple my my child? Where do I begin? I don't even know where to start. Here's another one. I want to teach scripture, sound theology, yet I am overwhelmed with the options. You have this desire and yearning to, and then you walk into life way, and you think, oh my goodness, I don't know where to begin. That's not uncommon, parents. I don't have, or you might hear also, I don't have a degree in theology, and I struggle with understanding the Bible myself, yet I'm paralyzed to teach for fear of teaching something that's wrong or contrary to Scripture. So some of these struggles, I want you to hear them. They are very common, parents and grandparents. They're very common. And so notice that these are some of the things that many families struggle with, especially parents. And what I would like to do this morning, at least one aim, is to give you some practical tips. But also some very sound theology and some resources as well to help push you in the right direction so that you can begin this own discipleship in your home. All right? So kid discipleship, what in the world is this? This is how we can shepherd our children and our grandchildren in the ways and gentleness of God who is our shepherd. By kid discipleship, you look at the disciples themselves and what Jesus does. He takes these 12 men up beside him and he teaches, he trains them, and he equips them for living out his ministry living out His life in their everyday world. If you look at the interactions that Jesus has with these disciples for approximately three years, you would think by the end of the three years after Jesus is uh, crucified and resurrected that they're utter failures. Because after Jesus is resurrected, what are they doing? They're sitting around Lamenting of what has gone on. They're not actually living out this mission and ministry of Jesus. So you would think at the face of it, they're failures after three years. And so if even Christ can take up 12 men and after three years, not really propel them in the right direction, we need to remind ourselves that there's much grace for us as parents and grandparents. Because Ultimately, hear me out, discipleship is a long-term obedience. It is not something that's going to happen overnight. It's not going to be happening uh, within a week. It's not going to be happening within a year or two. It is something that we live out year after year after year after year in faithfulness and honor to Christ. So how do we even begin doing that? Ultimately, what uh, Barna found from this is that each of those categories, the dormant, the hospital, the devotional, the vibrant, one out of four households in America, those who were Christian in their background, Christian in their beliefs, one out of four were considered vibrant. Where families were reading Scripture at least every day together, that they were at least praying every day together, and that they were welcoming people that weren't their family into their home a couple of times a month. So, how do we get that? How do we get from one out of four families to hopefully, Lord willing, Hickory Grove, we get it to four out of four? That we take in these types of resources and we try our best to live this out in our own homes. That we become not a dormant, a hospital, or devotional, that we become a vibrant household that teaches the way of Jesus, that we pray the ways of Jesus. And also, we invite others into our homes so that we can model this for our own children. And what is one of the practical tips that I begin with this morning is with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. What you find in this scripture is that Jesus quickly addresses his God as Father. It was not uncommon for the Jewish world to address God as Father. In fact, you find it in several spots. In Psalm 10, you are the helper of the fatherless. The psalmist speaks. In Psalm 68, the psalmist speaks, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows. God is addressed in that way. Then you have in Hosea 14, the the prophet speaks, For in you the fatherless find compassion. Or John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Well, how does he do that? Paul reveals that in Romans 8. But we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And Abba would have been Aramaic for a a term of endearment. It's close to what we would say, Daddy, today. Think of that, kids. Think of that, parents. There's a difference between saying father and daddy, isn't there? Big difference. There's a level of intimacy that's involved when you say daddy or dad. So when even Paul says these people who where we long to speak to our father, we cry out, Abba, daddy, father, father. And so how in the world can we even speak of God as Father? Well, we need the Son. We need the Son who comes to us as our own brother. And that's how the author of Hebrews speaks of that in the second chapter. For He is not ashamed to call us, Jesus, call us brothers. So what we have here, if you look at the big picture, is that God is Father. He sends His Son to die a death that we deserve. But in the process... He adopts us through his spirit to make us brothers with Jesus. And this Jesus speaks to his father on our behalf. It's a beautiful picture of none other than the family. And so when we gather together here as a body, I hope we see that this is our family. That we speak to our older brother, our elder brother Jesus, and he then carries this conversation forward as our mediator to God, our Father. And so when we speak those words of Father, we are hoping and praying that this is a heavenly Father who we can trust. Well, of course we can. This is a heavenly Father that we, can, we know He's listening and He's loving and caring, the one who is shepherding our own hearts our heads and our hands. This is the one who is generous to us and he embraces and delights in us just like a earthly father does. And so when we speak our father who art in heaven, this is the God we're speaking of, the God of the fatherless, the God who adopts us into his own family. And so when we look at this prayer as it relates to discipleship, kid discipleship, I hope we don't look at it only as a way to teach our children the Lord's Prayer. That's a part of it. But also we begin modeling it with our lips and with our lives. And so this is a model, a paradigm of how we are to not just speak but also to live as well. And so hopefully when we teach our children the Lord's Prayer, that we're teaching them to long for this Father in Heaven who desires to listen to our prayers, who desires to hear from us that we speak to him in a way that we know he is generous and caring and that we would teach our children to lean into him as he leans into us. And so this prayer, parents and grandparents, I want you to remind yourselves that this prayer also reminds us that you're going to blow it in some sort of way in your, your daily ministry to your kids and your grandkids. You're going to blow it in big and small ways. But we need to be reminded that today's mistakes and sins and tomorrows, they're already nailed to the cross of Christ. And there's much grace and forgiveness even in those times when we blow it. But even as fathers and mothers, earthly fathers and mothers, we can continue to teach our children to long for our our Father in heaven, the perfect Father who will never forsake them no matter what. Even in the midst of our own mistakes, even in the midst of the times where we don't model for them what it means to actually follow this Jesus and to live out the Father's life here on earth as it is in heaven. And so what we find here in the next verse, in verse 9, you have this call to hallowed be your name. We don't usually use that word of hallowed or hallowedness anymore, but it means simply holiness. And when you look at the, the, the Scripture's big view of holiness, what you find is that holiness is actually connected to wholeness, a completeness, a fullness. And so holiness to hallow God's name is actually to be hewn to him is to be sowed to Him, to be conformed to Him. And His holiness, to be holy as God is holy, is to conform our own brokenness to His wholeness, to His holiness. And so that our hearts and our behaviors, our actions, our beliefs, our habits, are all actually hewn to God's own holiness. So that we can model for our children what holiness is, practically and tangibly looks like in their daily lives. Hallowed be His name. Once it comes to us really wrestling with this, I think of the many times where I've wrestled with what it means to be holy before my children. But regardless, we are meant to model and demonstrate the goodness, the beauty, the truth of who this Jesus is not with just our lips, but with our lives. And when you find in Scripture to not take the Lord's name in vain, we sometimes misperceive this as only misspeaking about God. But that Hebrew word to take, to carry the Lord's name in vain, it means to not just speak in a way that's wrong, but actually to live in a way that's wrong or contrary to God's own holiness. And so for us to hallow his name, we don't need to just watch our mouths, but we also need to watch our lives. Because every little thing we do, it's under the microscope of a child, isn't it? They're great little imitators. There's so many times where I have said something or done something with my body, and guess what? There's a little Ezra waiting to do the same thing. There's a little garland there waiting to do the same. And so when we hallow God's name, we are actually trying our best to understand the holiness of who God is and we are living it out. We are speaking it out in the small and big areas of our life. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 10 Sally Lloyd-Jones, if you're not familiar with that uh, author, she's a kid's author. She's most famous, famously known for creating the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's one of the faster-selling storybook Bibles that we have on the market, and it is incredible. Not only is it visually incredible, but Sally Lloyd-Jones actually took a lot of time to be able to craft such beautiful stories that retell The famous stories across scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so if I could throw a resource out to you, here are a couple. Sally Lloyd Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, parents and grandparents. Here's another one. Uh, And I have it back here. I actually have both of them back here. Uh, Sally Lloyd Jones, one of them is called Found, and it's a retelling of the story uh, of Psalm 23. God is our shepherd. But she makes it in such a way that it can be used for even little children to speak on their level. But again, visually very entertaining for them. And here's the other one for Sally Lloyd-Jones. It is called Loved. You can actually buy Loved and Found together. Loved is nothing more than teaching them the Lord's Prayer in their own little language. So those three I would throw out to you. And as it relates to this verse right here, verse 10, Sally Louie jones she writes it in this way. As it relates to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do what is best, just like you do in heaven. And please do it down here too. How simple that she can take our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and then she makes it so much more simple. Do what is best as you do in heaven, but do it right here, down here too. Because God's perfect justice and peace are meant to not just be meant for the heavens but they're meant for here, down on earth too, in our own lives and they intersect And they kiss one another, heaven and earth. And so that we're able to enjoy that heaven on earth because it is being lived through us as parents. God does what is best. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't as parents and grandparents. We don't. Yet that's more of a reason for us to seek God's kingdom first and we allow God's kingdom to spill onto earth into our own little homes for our children. Because we are ambassadors, parents and grandparents. We're ambassadors. An ambassador is nothing more than a person who acts as a representative or promoter of another country. We have seen many ambassadors on TV of France, of Germany, of of Kenya and the like. These are people who speak and act on behalf of another country. Where Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul ties this in in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, "You are ambassadors of King Jesus." Which means that we are a people who act, represent, promote another country or kingdom, and that kingdom is ultimately from our King. Jesus. And so, even in our smallest actions in the home, we are ambassadors of that King and that kingdom. And so, I hope and pray that we can actually turn our little homes into little kingdoms of Jesus. It's not easy, I know that, but that's the aim, the goal for us. So, your will be done. It's okay. Let me just take a step aside to to speak to parents and grandparents to say that it's okay for us to really struggle with God's will. It is very common for the Christian to understand what does it mean for me to live out God's will right here and right now. It is okay to struggle with that, but also at the same time don't hide that from your children or grandchildren. Don't hide it because... It is in that time that you can teach them that even Jesus struggles with his heavenly Father about to live out his kingdom. You see him struggling in the desert as he's being tempted by the devil. You see him struggling with this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He continues to try to figure out, is this truly your will, Father? So we should also express that we shouldn't hide it from our children, but we should also teach them that this is not a careless and easy search for them to live out. So we can actually disciple and teach them how to live that out right here and right now. And we can take time to equip little ears to listen well. And one of the ways that we can teach our little ears to listen well is to none other than to pray with them and allow them to pray. Because it is in speaking and listening to God that we're training their ears to hear the Father. And the more that you speak to somebody, guess what? The more you're learning to hear their voice and to listen to every word that they're speaking. Because it's not just about listening to the words, it's listening for the tone. Not too long ago, I saw on Facebook a video of this shepherd who had many sheep into a, a field and he had all of these college students who came up to him and they were i guess they're studying the sheep and studying what it means to be a shepherd and so this shepherd actually took all of these students into the field and he said here's the sound you need to make and he gave them the call he said you need to make it like this and here you have one by one 10 to 15 students trying their best to call for these sheep to come to them. And guess what happened? None of them came. Not one time. They didn't even turn their heads to look at these college students. He gave them the exact sound church for them to make. Yet they wouldn't even turn their head. And then in a split second, he made the same noise, the same call, And every single one of those sheep lifted up their heads and ran to their shepherd. It's more than just listening to the words, but also the sound, the tone of our Heavenly Father, who is our shepherd. And so we can take times every single day and every single week to train our children to listen. Not just to pray, to speak to God, but to listen for God's voice. And to train them right now to listen to what it sounds like. What is being said to them. Because now that we train their ears, we can get them ready no matter what area of life that they can hear their Heavenly Father and listen and to be ready for action. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Say grace often, church. Say grace often. What I mean by that is one of the most favorable, conducive, encouraging spaces in your home is the dinner table. You will be amazed by how many conversations will happen at the dinner table. And so many rich conversations. And the table can be a very sacred space for you to disciple your children. And so some of my friends have done this in their own uh, setting at at the dinner table at night, they'll do this. They'll sing a little quick hymn, maybe a single verse. Then they'll uh, start eating. Excuse me, they'll say grace. They'll take turns saying grace, giving thanks for the food. And then as they eat, the mom or dad will read a Bible story as they eat. You have them there. Your children are going to eat well, they're going to fight you sometimes, but they're going to eat. Last time I checked, 100% of children eat. They might not eat at the speed and rate that you want them to, but they're hungry. And so let's put them in spaces, sacred spaces, where they are able to eat and enjoy the food that has been given, but also at the same time, they can hear Scripture read, and they can talk about that Bible story for the evening. So here's my... Two two cents on this. Take two to three prayers and give a melody to it. And for them to sing. All of our children can sing, God our Father, God our Father, we thank you. Right? Ava has no excuse me, Sophie has no clue what she's singing. But she loves singing it. She wants to be one of the first ones to sing God our Father. Take two or three of those prayers and introduce them because what we are hoping to do in saying grace is that we're teaching our children to see that even food is a generous donation of our Heavenly Father. That even food is a heavenly gift from our loving Father. It is a divine donation from Him. And we're hoping to train their eyes to see exactly that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If there is something central to the Christian story, it is forgiveness. That could, you, you could argue, is the very heart of the Christian story, forgiveness where there's a moral debt so high that we can do nothing as human beings to pay it off. And so when we are looking at this Christian story, we see that grace arrives on the scene, that mercy takes on flesh, and that forgiveness embraces a cross to forgive an amassed amount of moral debt. The death that we were meant to die, this Jesus takes on the cross for us. And so may we speak that Christian story to our children as often as we can because it is the heart of the Christian story of forgiveness. But it is also meant to be the hearth of the home to be able to express that same forgiveness. What I mean by hearth, you know what a hearth is, right? That space that's right below a fireplace, the closest spot to where the heat is coming from, from the fire. Once it comes to the hearth itself, we need to see our homes as hearths, a place where the forgiveness of Jesus is burning and that we're able to express it in our smallest and biggest actions, that this is this forgiveness that we seek. This is this forgiveness that we try our best to live out. And it is a place where we are trying to show you right now that this forgiveness is worthy of all of your life children and we want to seek that out and so we can seek places in our home where we can express this forgiveness and so here's where we're going to end this morning once it comes to this barna research I told you that one out of four homes were the ones that were vibrant, where prayers were said near, nearly every day, Scripture was read nearly every day, and that also you have non-family members, visitors that would visit the home a few times a month. What you see at the very end, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What we find here is A sense of irony that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. The two things that Jesus was led into. One, he was led into temptation in order to be tested and then he was sent to the cross because of evil. As one scholar says about this verse... This is utterly unique for Jesus. This is something, this is a place where his followers, his disciples cannot follow after him. The rest of us are therefore commanded to pray that we may be delivered from the power of evil. And we can pray, catch this church, and we can pray that prayer with confidence precisely because Jesus has met that power and has defeated it once and for all. We can only pray that last verse and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because Jesus has defeated evil. He has defeated temptation. And so when we express to our children victory, hopefully we're teaching them that we live from, a, from victory, not for victory. That no matter what temptations and evil that they're going to face, or maybe they might be agents of evil maybe be agents that lead others into temptation, but there's still victory that they can live from, that there's still much grace and forgiveness there for them. So when we see this research in front of us, Lord willing, we want to move. If we're in a dormant home where there's no prayers read, uh, no prayer said, no no scripture read that there's no conversations about Jesus and people are not invited into our homes or if we move to the hospitable place where it might occasionally be touched on but there's not really much happening at least for faith conversations or in the devotional time you might read scripture every once in a while you might pray with your children or you might even occasionally, rarely lead a person into your home and to feed them, to take care of them hopefully those three areas we can move into a vibrant household of faith where prayers are spoken every single day, that scripture is imbibed and instilled within them at least every day, and that we're inviting people into our home so that they can see how we live as a people of faith. Because here's what the research says. The families that were vibrant as a household of faith those children, after generations later, are still the ones who are continuing this cycle of reading Scripture to their children, nearly, grandchildren nearly every day. These are the generations that are still speaking prayers and asking children to pray. These are still the same uh, people that were inviting people into their homes, visitors. And so if we can move towards a direction for us as Hickory Grove, it would be a vibrant household. A people who are trying their best to search and seek out what it means to follow Jesus, even in our households. And one of the ways that I see that we can do this is by teaching our children the Lord's Prayer. Because there's going to be so much power within that prayer that we see not just tomorrow. It's not going to be a quick fix, not just a week from now, not months from now, but years down the road, that they're going to have some sort of struggle in their life, and for some reason they can't figure it out. But our Lord, who art in heaven, pops into their name, pops into their head, and they cannot figure out how in the world that popped in there. It's because mom and dad, granddad, grandmom took the time to speak those words and to invite them into praying the ways of Jesus. So let us move our children and disciple them in the smallest of areas of their life and in the biggest areas of their life so that we can seek what it means to follow Jesus even in temptations, seeing gifts of bread as from the heavenly Father. That we see that we are meant to be a people of the kingdom and we're meant to live it out on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord willing, we ultimately teach them to depend on their heavenly Father no matter what. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can even come to you and say, Father, and it is only because of your Son's death on our behalf, and it is only because of you sending your Spirit into our lives that we can now cry out to you, Abba, Father. And so we thank you for our elder brother Jesus that has invited us into this community of faith, this family of faith, so that we might try to seek out and to encourage our children to follow after you. And so it is difficult, Jesus. It is so difficult for us to know the timing and the wisdom of teaching our children to love you and to enjoy you forever. So we ask for guidance and wisdom from your Spirit that in those times, in those days that we have this week, may we seek even a dinner table as a sacred space to speak about your name. May we take times to pray with our children and to invite them into this way of life that we are seeking after. And Jesus, we also pray that in, if there's opportunities that we can invite neighbors or visitors into our home and to be able to just throw on them a mass amount of grace by feeding them and just talking with them and to be able to live out the ways of Jesus. May you give us those opportunities so that we can model and imitate your ways for our children so that they would see that what we do is not about what happens on just a Sunday, that it happens to Every single day of the week, Monday through Sunday, and that we desire to live for you and to honor you no matter where we're at, whether it's the house, the restaurant, in our daily jobs, or even on a Sunday as we gather for worship. You are worthy of every bit of our time and talent. So, Lord, give us that wisdom so that we might speak it and live it before our children. We offer these things in his name. Amen. Didn't need that, did we? Think of, just uh, what's that? I should think of uh what's the money called? Green low. No. Uh butter. Uh, oh, Conor. Conor. Yeah, Conor. Yeah, yeah. Conor. yeah, yeah. 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 The, cra- the, cra- oh, cra- yeah. the crazy yeah. the crazy dude that, that starts singing. Thing, yeah, that's the one. For your edification. <laughs> okay guys. <clears throat> um Here's what we're going to do this week. Uh, considering that we spent what thirty-five minutes, forty minutes last week, uh, trying to lay out for those who weren't here, we laid out all of the first five books of Scripture: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We laid it all out, and we solved all these kinds of problems, Teresa. So, I uh, hate you missed it. I'm no, just kidding. It's on again, the podcast. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I need to listen to the podcast. Yeah, it is on the podcast. And, and Jody said that she listened to it, and you can hear. I'm trying to keep my speaker uh, a little bit more accessible this time so it's more clear. I'm going to try to speak over it the whole time. If I do not, remind me to speak over it. Um, so, we're not going to do that kind of work this evening. For those who were able to jump into the study, uh, those who, who weren't here, you have your own book. It's in the center of the table. Make sure you grab one before you leave. It's but a dream, uh, it is. A uh, it is. And this is, you know, in many ways, it's very difficult if you go and look for Bible Studies, Lifeway, or whatever Christian distributor of some sort, it's hard to find a balance where you want people to have a really rich experience in the Scriptures, to get some really great um, sides of how to interpret what's going on and really uh, throw you into the depths of Scripture, and then the opposite end, you just get pretty much none of that. You just get very flowery stuff and it doesn't really pull you into the depths of the scripture. This one does lean towards that first part. As you said, there's a lot of reading, uh, a lot of really hard concentration on what is going on. So I want to take about 15 to 20 minutes for us to look at what you guys really went through this past week to get your feedback. On the study itself, and if you weren't here, um, that's our we, We'll be able to tie in a lot of what we're what we're going to be studying. Um, so let's let's do that. The the spots that you were able to start to you know read the first chapter of Ezra, and then you were supposed to jump in the first two chapters of Nehemiah. Um, Let's, let's look at common words or themes that you started to see jump out as their language uses emerge. What did you notice? I okay. got exiles, return, rebuild, restore. Good. Excellent. Spot on. Anybody else? Exiles, rebuild, restore. There's a the fourth one. Return. 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 Exiles return, restore, rebuild. That's all Covenant. Covenant, yes. Another big one. It brings out how God is behind people's actions several times. Today. Yeah. Like, where God reminds the reader that he's acting through all these different things to accomplish mm-hmm. in his will. We're going to touch a little bit on that tonight after our 15-20 minutes of looking through the study. Um, But yeah, and in fact, what we uh, quickly looked at last week was exactly that. That when Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are returning, they're returning about 13 years apart from each other. um, They have some vague notion that God is acting through them. Because the temple is being rebuilt, they start to see, okay, these are the promises coming to fruition right in front of us. They're, they're making, God's making it very clear. He wants the temple rebuilt and He is working right now. And so yeah, He is, they, they do see that God's working and He's active. Specifically in His covenant, the promises that He's given. We talked about that a little, little last week. What else jumped out to you? It says that the predictions of Jeremiah are coming true. Yep. But Jeremiah's acting these two books. So is it about is it like oh. not chronological, chronological order? No, no, no. Not necessarily. Um, certain books will take place chronologically. Um, trying to help us think through um, even the Gospels. Most scholars are going to date Mark first that he is probably the first one written. Um, Then Matthew, then Luke, John's most definitely the last. Uh, So just because there's an order from left to right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, doesn't mean chronological orders there. Same with the Old Testament. Just because one comes after doesn't mean chronologically the same. Jeremiah would have been a prophet before the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so when you do have that mention of the seventy years in Jeremiah, yeah, so that was on God because I read all the Bible, and I, mean, I have, but I didn't know about any of the, the things that, that Jeremiah was told. It was telling, it was coming through, coming true. Yeah, so Jeremiah was would it be a, <clears throat> one of those prophets who expected exile. The people are exiled. But there's this timetable when Jeremiah is speaking that in approximately 70 years, uh, they there will begin this return back into the land of Israel. And so what you find with Jeremiah, uh, sorry, with Ezra and Nehemiah, they're looking at the prophecies of Jeremiah and they're saying, uh, God's working right now because we're starting to come back. So that it's not only a testimony to Uh, Jeremiah is a true prophet, but it's a testimony of the fact that God is working back then through Jeremiah, but he's working through the people of Ezra and Nehemiah as well. So one thing that um, kind of confuses me that I don't really get um, is like if I was telling the story, in no way would I list out the number of dishes, pans, bowls, and other articles. And so, like, I know because that's odd, and that strikes me as odd, but mm-hmm. it has to have meaning, but I have no idea of why there was intentionality in mm-hmm. labeling how many bowls and taking that inventory. Like, I understand the genealogy in chapter two, because that was important to them, but Counting out the bowls, I don't understand what the significance is. Right. Is it a value fight? Go back to Ezra. I'll make this go. <laughs> uh, more than if I can but briefly answer. exactly what they They go out and they sell you exactly how many bowls. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I kept flipping over it like 10 times. Because they were trying to redo exactly. The measurements, the materials used. Yeah, it felt like since it was God's temple and of God, that everything had to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Exactly mm-hmm. like that. Exactly like the original temple was. You all right, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they did want to measure, in a sense, what is uh, all the things that are brought in. So it has um Has a tinge of like this is historically reliable. This is this is Ezra or Nehemiah taking a step aside and saying, you know, we this is a historical documentation of what was brought in. So this is one way for them to say, here's our item receipt, Mm -hmm. right? Here's our item receipt. This is what we brought in, and now it's going to be used for these purposes. we get to looking at those details We're like, what in the world? Why does this matter to the story that's happening? Uh, but as these guys are bringing out, is that all of this was not just to keep a historical item receipt, it was to show the faithfulness of the people, the faithfulness of Yahweh, of God, and uh, how they're about to be his, uh, faithful with these things in order to rebuild the temple. And so we look at stuff like that and we're like, oh my gosh, what, that doesn't, it plays no important part. But for them, it's, it's so much more than that. Because we don't tend to keep our receipts from Walmart for more than a day or if they even make it out with us out of Walmart. Okay? <laughs> yeah. But we don't... We don't think, hey, this receipt will be very valuable to what God is doing. For them, they're seeing that. This receipt is valuable for what God is doing. Because we need these types of things in order to help rebuild our temple. So yeah, um, I didn't understand. It. So if I can feed off your question, uh, your, your point a little. I didn't understand the value of genealogy until about five years, five years ago. It's one of those other things you're like, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so-and-so baguette so-and-so and, so-and-so yeah. and so baguette so, so and so and so and so, sons of so-and-so, so-and-so is enrolled in this. Awesome. I thought everybody in the South was <laughs> yeah. well aware that genealogy was very important. Yeah, right? <laughs> we do have a little bit more of an ownership of genealogy yes. in the South. My mother-in-law, is, she has this entire genealogy mapped out in her head, and it's remarkable. Um, but the genealogy itself tells a story. This is God's faithfulness. On behalf of Israel, He is keeping His people together. And He is keeping the 12 tribes specifically together. And He is restoring them and reuniting them for His purposes. So when Jesus' genealogy is told in Matthew 1, there's rich purposes behind it. This is of the King of David and He is also the promises of Abraham. So it's leaning back to covenant. Covenant promises. Covenant promises. God keeps His promises. Unfortunately, we don't. But yet, He's still working. So yeah, when you get caught up in those 14,000 dishes and 12 what? gold plates and all that, think of think of it in a bigger picture. It is hard, though. Going back to the counting the dishes and stuff, back whenever they got instructions on how to build a temple, was there a A certain number of bowls and plates and stuff that they needed to have in the temple? So, you did have certain things that were a part of the temple the lampstand, the menorah, um, the the showbread, things like that that were most definitely had to be a part of the Holy of Holies or at least on the court, in the courtyard. Um, Now, do we get a full list of that? Not exactly. We get the most important details. Um, and we'll sort of touch on that t- t- tonight in a few minutes. Uh, some, some plates and some lampstands and stuff like that were very important for the worship of God's people. But the amount of stuff that they're bringing in, I can't imagine that they were all used within the temple. Most likely they're taking this stuff melting it down. And they're about to create a beautiful scene uh, within the temple itself, most likely. I mean, they do, but we just don't get all those very specific details. And they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. All right, let's look at um, this part. I I like this part of uh, the study because a lot of them... Uh, Bible studies that I've been a part of, at least books, they won't leave room for you to ask questions. They don't. They don't leave room for you to say, "All right, these are the questions that I have." They just expect you to know all the answers after reading whatever text you're dealing with. So let's look at the one right below on page nine. <laughs> How hard was this? Read through each book without stopping. Parents, grandparents. <laughs> what stood out in your reading Um, I want to focus on the next one though what questions do you have at the start of this study I think Jody's already alluded to one y'all got it figured out I question. It says that Nehemiah left to go back to the king before the temple was completely rebuilt. Why didn't he just stay? Until to see it through? I don't know. Because he left and then... Yes, he does. That's when people started breaking their oath to God. Yeah. Because he was there, he was there, he, he made sure everyone followed the covenant, the rules, the decrees that the son yeah. of God. And when he left, everything went to ruin yeah, I don't know why he leaves and why can't he send a messenger sort of thing. Um, I don't think the text helps us answer that. But what the text does help us uh, figure out is that if you know anything about the story of Israel is that if there is no leadership involved, everything falls into ruins. It happens over and, over, and over. over. It's a cycle. In fact, it's one of the most common cycles you find in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Judges... That is the very premise of Judges, is that if there's no judge or leadership involved, the people in, in the language of Judges do what is right in their own eyes. And so that might be the connection that um, Ezra and Nehemiah are, are trying to help us see, is that if there is no spiritual leadership involved, the people just begin wandering and doing their own thing, and the temple falls apart, essentially, because their lack of leadership, which means that the text is telling us that we need to long for a leader that gives true spiritual direction. I think that's one of the hints that we get, and it's longing for a true messianic figure, a true longing for true leadership of who that should look like, a true priest, a true scribe. Let's take a couple more minutes, guys. What else pops out to you? We've got about three more minutes on this. Ask anything, just really anything that pops up. It's wide open. Go. don't be afraid of the questions. Why were they? Why, were they, why were they so many different kings in that short period of time? Why were they so young? Uh, Persian kings or? Yes. They're like one was like 18, of like twenty-two. They're all super young. All, I don't know. Yeah. So you have uh, Xerxes from four eighty-three to four sixty-five. So watch, watch this this span of time. This is crazy. Uh, Xerxes from four eighty-five to four sixty-five. And then 464, uh, you have Artaxerxes uh, that comes in, 464 to 424, so he's there for about 40 years. And then you have um, shortly after that Darius the Second, 423 to 405, so approximately 20 years. Um, I don't know what is going on, uh, at least for these guys. I mean, they're not reigning very long, which. You know, <coughs> Lifespan and things like that in that day were probably, to be old then was 50s, 60s. Um, Just the difficulty of life. To see beyond 60 was practically unheard of. There's like studies that have been done on like uh, Egyptian royal bloodlines and Persian royal bloodlines and things like that that show uh, that the royal, the leadership, the, the royal... Bloodlines are probably the most unhealthy part of the huh. kingdom, anyway, because there was so much inbreeding that went on because they didn't marry yeah. outside of those bloodlines. Yep. So yeah, were, they were very—they didn't live very long at all. That's mm-hmm. why so many Egyptian uh, pharaohs died in their teens to twenties. You know. Yeah, so that's what I was getting about. Hmm. They died really young. Yeah, and at least for us, we can, you know, date archaeologically now, each of these kings. What the text, I think, is trying to get us to, to point out, to figure out, is that um, even though there's different leadership involved, God's purposes are still coming, again, I'm going to keep saying this, fruition, it's still coming uh, to, to, um, to a head despite whose <coughs> the king at the time. Um, that whether it's Xerxes or attacked Xerxes or Darius II, he is still fulfilling his promises because uh, Ezra comes back in 485 and then Nehemiah comes back in 445. So you, you have some, some time there and there's still different kings that are in those roles And yet, the people are still working to pull um, all of this temple back together so that the covenant promises can keep coming about. Anything else, guys? Something that stood out to me um, when I was um, reading in Ezra talking about. how some of the people were, once I got the foundation finished, you know, some of the people were praising and so happy, and some of the elders were actually sad, like they were weeping over, I guess, seeing what had been and, you know, seeing the new come to pass. But um, there was like a little excerpt, I guess, here in my Bible, and um, it, I guess, it went ahead hey, Haggai. Um, in two nine, it says the final glory of this house will be greater than the first. As the Lord's armies, I will provide peace in this place. Um, and so, you know, it talks about our brokenness, and that um, you know He's going to make our our future great, no matter what, even if it looks completely different than what we yeah. have a vision for to begin with. Yeah, because as you pointed out, the younger generations were. Working on the temple, mm-hmm. and the, the the elder generation is helping, but you got to remember these are the ones that had seen mm-hmm. the temple before they had gone into exile. Um, it, it, you know, it, a healthy reading of the text would be that these younger generations had never seen the temple before; they were probably born in exile because mm-hmm. they've been there for a couple of decades. Um, some of them a couple of decades, some of them longer. So to come back and hear, or really, let's, let's move back, uh, to be in exile and hear stories from your parents and grandparents about what <laughs> was, and you have no clue what it's like. But then you come back with your parents and grandparents, and then you, you're a part of that rebuilding process. They see it as something joyful because they heard their stories of their parents and grandparents, but the grandparents are weeping. The parents are weeping because... This is what we used to remember. And so now our, our own children can be a part of this. So it's definitely uh, sadness, but also great happiness. That's sadness over what was lost and happiness over what is Yeah, yeah. There's probably a, a massive amount of, of emotions happening in that, in that time. And so it gets a little bit to the earthiness of what's happening right in front of them. Now we can read, it is so easy for us to, to read stories like Ezra and Nehemiah and be so disconnected from what the Scripture is, is talking about. Um, if there's anything that I want you guys to get uh, from Ezra and Nehemiah is that um, we need to connect to this story in so many different ways. Because as Blake figured out the first night, why Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, because I think what God is doing in and through Hickory Grove is much like what was going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's a great amount of spiritual uh, renewal in Ezra, and there's a great amount of, in some sense, uh, physical renewal in Nehemiah. And so when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we need to think through it with the lens of Hickory Grove and to see what God is doing right here and right now um, and that's, that gives a little bit of a fresher approach you know, a little bit fresher appreciation for Ezra Nehemiah as a text any final comments before we sort of move into <clears throat> what we're going to deal with tonight we're going to have to scurry but you're more than welcome alright if not I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. We're going to go verses 10 to 14. (coughs) And we're going to jump around, so get ready. Main focus, uh, if I could uh, sew a thread for us tonight... It's the thread of God's faithfulness and covenant faithfulness, but also uh, the promises that are uh, ever so real and tangible for the people of God, primarily through the temple. The promise of the temple. Okay? So for the people of Israel, the temple was a place where heaven and earth met. Where heaven and earth met. Um, And we're going to trace out sort of uh, a pepper, uh, sort of a uh, dots of scripture that lead us to where we're at in Ezra and Nehemiah to see those promises coming about. So, Genesis 2 10 through 14, I want you guys to hear this. A river flowed out of Eden. This is God, the creation of heavens and earth. And we're, we've focused tight in, as we said last week, on a very specific place, the place of Eden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold is that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone was there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Just just hold that right there. All right, now turn over to Exodus 26. (coughs) I'm going to trace, try to pull these together into a tight knot. Exodus 26 verses 31 through 35. So, uh, give you context here. First, uh, Exodus 25 through Exodus 40 is a laying out of all the temple plans. This is what you should do to build this part of the sanctuary. This is what you should do for this part. This is what you should do for this part. So, it's a structuring of the temple. So, this is. Uh, God giving Moses these plans to the people of Israel. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most high place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. Right? Do you see any connections between Genesis 2 in Exodus 26, they're very subtle. Three right of the river. <coughs> four colors four rivers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? And three colors. Name those colors. I'm use color. And. hang hanging on four gold. I think gold. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 They separate things. Yep. Do, mm. the Say it again, real up. They separate things like the borders do. Uh-huh. Like the rivers do. Okay. Like borders. Okay. It's a good observation. What about that mercy seat? Do you know what the mercy seat is? Or the ark? In the Old Testament? It was seen as the very presence of God contained. So it was a symbolic. um, The ark was a symbolic space that had the presence of God. All right? You see the, the language of the temple, sorry, the table outside the veil and the lampstand. <clears throat> we can jump over these because we're not Jewish in background, but for uh, Jude to read these closely, the lampstand and, and the, the, uh, the table, the table would have held uh, the bread, the showbread, which is sort of this uh, symbol of God feeding. So think manna. God feeding His people, but also the lampstand was seen as a symbolic presence of God's uh, ever-burning presence. So on the journey from Egypt to to the Promised Land, God feeds His people with bread, but also during the day, He leads them with a pillar of what? Clouds, and at night, He leads them with a pillar of fire. This is God's very presence in the midst of His people. Now, how in the world does this connect to Genesis two? I'm getting to think hard on that, but I like it. I yeah, go back. Go ahead and go back. Genesis two. <coughs> Where is this place located? Tells us in that first verse. 2 10. Yeah. Very specific place where God's presence was located, where He showed Himself to His people and they walked with one another in the coolness of the day. This is, as I sort of hinted at this last week, I didn't want to go too far in it because I knew that this is where we're going to be at this week, that there is a connection between Eden and the temple. Got it? There's a connection for God's people between Eden and the temple. To, sh- to look at Eden, this is where there was a perfect communion of God's people with Him. When you go beyond that in Genesis 3, there's a breaking of that sort of communion uh, where the people choose their, Adam and Eve choose their own desires, their own temptation, and they flee from him and flee from his presence and in fact the language of Genesis uh, 3 is that they went out east away from the presence of the Lord so for the people here to return back into the temple to actually go into the temple was to go back into Eden got it see the gold that is talked about In Genesis 2, the gold that is talked about here in Exodus 26, it doesn't go away because the gold was also a very brilliant presence that to to have this uh, gold, even to this day, has a symbol of uh, like royalty to it, right? So this shining presence would have been a symbolic presence of God's royalty and radiance. So here, even in Exodus 26, the people knew that to enter into the Holy of Holies, which they wouldn't have been allowed to, only the the high priest would be allowed to do this, but they can enter up to a certain point to have their sins uh, forgiven through the sacrifice of this animal. Or, uh, in some cases, the giving of this bread or some sort of dove or some sort of uh, other sacrifice. But it's only the high priest who can go in completely and take part of this ritual where the entire community of Israel, their sins are covered. But it takes that mediator. It takes that king-like character, that royal-like character to go into the uh, high, as a high priest into those places. All right. Now, let's go for a couple more texts as we finish out tonight. Go to 1 Chronicles 17. So this is going to be on the hind end of your first five books. You have 1 and 2 Samuel and then you're going to jump into 1 and 2 Kings and then you're going to have right after that First and Second Chronicles. I want you to go to 1 Chronicles 17. So this is God's promise to David, the king. If you look at verse 3, but the name, uh, sorry, it's the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. This is uh, sort of this priest who's uh, helping out uh, David. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. And then you jump down to verse 9. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. They will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Down to verse 10. I declare to you the Lord will build you a house. I will raise offspring after you. One of your own sons. Catch this part, guys. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 14 But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And you think, well, of course, this is David who's receiving this word from Nathan. Who is David's son? Solomon. It must be Solomon. Yes, it is. But no, it's not. (laughs) There's always a but in Scripture, in the Old Testament. Yes, 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 but. This is your but. Here is Solomon who will build this temple who will bring in the Ark of the Covenant where the God, very presence of God will dwell with this people and He will bring peace and prosperity to this people. The covenant promises will come about. Yet, there will be an established throne language forever. And then I will confirm Him in my house in my kingdom forever. And I will establish His throne forever. So there's this promise that David, a David-like character, a kingly-like character will come in. he will give, uh, build a temple, and he will establish this kingdom forever. There's that lineage thing again. Yeah, there's that lineage thing again. I mean, because Jesus is the one they're ultimately talking about. Shh, shh, shh. shh. Oh, wait, wait, stop it! <laughs> You're stealing the thunder, brother. Go to Exodus 43 i oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, Ezekiel 43. I'm going to let uh, Blake finish it off here in a second. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I really am. Make sure part, really so <coughs> what did I tell you? Oh, Ezekiel. Did I tell you Ezekiel or Exodus? Ezekiel. All right. Ezekiel 43. I think I said Exodus one time. Um, so Ezekiel 43. He's right after Isaiah. 43 43 so if I can give you a little nugget of this Ezekiel 40 through 48 as a whole is this vision of a new temple that's going to be established those eight chapters Ezekiel 40 through 48 a new temple is going to be established yes they have the temple, Remember Ezekiel, he's a prophet, so he's speaking most likely to exiles. Yes, we long for rebuilding of the temple, but there's also going to be this greater temple that comes. Uh, so if you look at uh, Ezekiel 43, verse two, verse one and two, uh, then he led me to the gate. This is a vision that God is giving to Ezekiel. A gate fixed uh, facing what east? Huh. How convenient. Where was it that Adam and Eve were let, let out? And they went east of Eden. And behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was coming from what? Hmm. And then if you jump down to verse 12 of 43, this is the law of the temple. The whole territory, the top of the mountain, all around shall be the most holy. Behold, this is the law of the of the temple. So here you have this vision given to Ezekiel that there will be this great temple one day where all of God's people will be restored back to Yahweh. And that this great presence will come from the east and it won't just be any presence, it'll be actually be the very presence of Yahweh himself. Now go to John 2, Matthew Mark, Luke John. And then I'll let Blake finish. Gosh. So hard to turn to. John 2 uh, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews, so they're in this conversation with Jesus. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you want to raise it in three days? But he was speaking and this, this is a moment where John steps back. Even though he's recording, he's, he's rewriting what has happened uh, in the midst of Jesus, he's, he's giving a sort of narration A narrator uh, voice of what's happening. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. What you have from Genesis 2 moving into Exodus 26 moving into the promises the covenant that God makes to David that there will be this king like character after David who will not just build a temple but will reestablish it as well as the authority of Yahweh then you move into Ezekiel 40 through 48 and you have this little snippet in 43 that this presence will come from the east the very presence of Yahweh will be with His people. And then you have interrupting the scene of early Rome, this Jesus who comes on the scene and He says to these Jews in conversation, yeah, destroy this temple. But in three days it will be rebuilt. What, we, what I'm trying to trace out for you is this. For the people of Israel... It has always been wrapped up. Their life has always been wrapped up in true worship. So to see the temple. Is to understand in the back of their heads. That this is the very place where God's presence meets with us. And we meet with him. Where heaven touches earth. It is not contradiction. It is not without coincidence, church, that when we see Jesus coming onto the scene, that He is both divine and human. That we find that in the temple of Jesus, the body of Jesus, heaven meets earth. There's a little bit of both. And so what I think what we can trace from the Old Testament into the New, is that the temple has always been a place for God's people to meet with. With God Himself. Now, as a New Testament or a New Covenant people, we meet with God through none other than Jesus Himself. Alright? God's promises, there was no A plan, then B plan. In the Old Testament, God's plan has always been to meet with his people, yet there's a very unique way in which he shows up on the scene in the New Testament. So, for Ezekiel, how does this relate to Ezra and Nehemiah? Ezra and Nehemiah longed for God's presence to be with his people again. But they understood at the same time it would not happen none of that would happen without god's faithfulness ultimately running the show as we already talked about tonight as you're bringing out george as soon as that spiritual leadership's gone it falls apart there must be one who is fully faithful no matter what that the people can depend upon in his faithfulness in order for his people to be re- reestablished and renewed And that covenant is ultimately wrapped up in Jesus. So when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, don't let, and here's my point, don't let your eyes stop at Ezra and Nehemiah. Let your eyes keep peeking forward to Jesus this whole time. Because there's going to be three or four themes that we keep coming back to. Temple is one of them, how we long for Jesus. And so I'm going to give you snippets of these uh, every Sunday and say this is where it's fulfilled in Christ in temple is one of them. Alright, any questions guys? I know we went over and I'm sorry. That was great. That was a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Good. Alright. Uh, we'll end in prayer here in a second. We will not meet next week because that's the beginning of Holy Week services. Right? Am I on? No, you're right. Mm-hmm. That's next right. Next is Palm Yeah, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So we'll, um, uh, one reason why I say it is because I'll have the opening prayer at uh, Whitehall, so I won't be here. Another thing is, it's for us to go and worship with Whitehall and other churches from our community. You're not obligated to, but you're more than welcome to go and uh, be there at Whitehall next Sunday. All right. All right, guys. Listen to prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this evening. How we have rummaged to the best of our ability throughout the scriptures, and as poor of a job that we do. We are reminded that You are faithful no matter what. And that You continue to reveal Yourself through Your Son. And You continue to reveal Yourself through Your Spirit. And so, Lord, as we continue to uh, to work through Ezra and Nehemiah, may we long for You. As the people uh, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah longed for Your presence to be near to them, Lord, we don't have to to really hope in a temple to do that but you made yourself known through the temple of Christ himself and so that we can we can go to you at any time and that your presence through your spirit is always with us and so may we long for you in the sense of as communicating with our heavenly father and may we long to hear from you as our father to give us guidance and direction and to lean on you no matter what. And so, Lord, we pray that especially over our church as we continue to figure out what it means to be renewed because of your presence. And we see that you're up to something here at Hickory Grove. So give us eyes to see those things, ears to hear, and hearts to be completely swooned by them. And so we pray for your presence and we long for your presence this evening. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.